Father, we thank you that you speak to us through the words of Scripture. Might we have ears that are open and ready to hear, and may you change our hearts this morning. Amen. Let me begin this morning by putting it to you that we don't know how to wait. We don't really know how to wait in 21st century Western society. Uh, To give a small window into um, how I find the experience of waiting, um, I I love porridge. It's healthy, it's tasty, it's filling, it's warming in the winter. I love porridge, but I hardly ever eat it because when I make it downstairs in the morning, I will always choose for my breakfast a bowl of Weetabix or bran flakes that it takes 20 seconds for me to make over a bowl of porridge that needs two minutes in the microwave. Without fail, I can't bear to wait the couple of minutes it takes to heat up porridge and then let it cool and eat it. Um, I don't know how to wait. Maybe you're a little bit more patient than me, hopefully. Um, But before we explore that theme a little further, um, let's remind ourselves, as Tony's just been doing for us, um, where we're up to in this letter by the Apostle James uh, to the first century church and to us. Uh, James packed no punches in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, as you'll know if you were here last week or were caught up online. Uh, Gone were the warm greetings from earlier in the letter, the, the brothers and sisters, the encouragement to turn to Christ, to know his grace. Uh, Instead, we had, uh, now listen, 5 verse 1. We had the call of the prophets to weep and wail. And we had probably the strongest rebuke and warning that we have seen in the letter yet. And it probably wasn't addressed to us, as Dan taught us, probably a sort of imagined group of of unbelieving rich people. But even so, it it made us squirm. Or at least it, it should make us squirm if we're honest about the relationship between our hearts and our bank balances. But perhaps for some of us, it didn't just make us squirm. It also made us cheer. It made us at fist pump with satisfaction. Social injustice, yes. Oppression of the poor, yes. Deep inequality in society, yes. This is exactly what I want the Bible to be speaking into. This is exactly what the Bible should be speaking into. We squirmed, but we also cheered. What next, we cry. We spot the brothers and sisters in verse 7 and see that James is turning his attention back to us, back to the church. And we're fired up, we're excited, we're enraged at the injustice, and we're on tenterhooks for James's great instruction to the church in light of the oppression and inequality in society. And we read verse 7, be patient then brothers and sisters. And the wind goes out of our sails. Be patient, brothers and sisters. Is that it? We ask. Isn't that what you say to someone who's waiting to hear back from a job interview or struggling to get their kids into bed? Be patient. Is that all God has to say in the face of such oppression, such injustice, such inequality? But uh, maybe, uh, maybe we're, sm- we're smart, so we look it up in some different translations, hoping we'll find something a bit more dynamic and punchy. Uh, the ESV, be patient. New King James, be patient. Even the message, wait patiently. And we feel a bit disappointed. And we carry on reading, but, but maybe a bit lacklusterly, n- not quite hanging on 
every word in the same way now. Just be patient. All that God has to say in response to the injustice that we've just had acted out on these mats before us, and, and as we read in verses 5, 1 to 6. Well, we're going to spend our time together this morning uh, unpacking this command to be patient, to wait, to wait well. And we'll see, I hope, uh, two things. We'll see why it's essential that we wait, and we'll see how we are to wait. And hopefully we'll see that this answer of God's to the deep questions that uh, this society, uh, James is writing to, our society, every society faces, um, is not in fact an inadequate, an unsatisfying answer, but a wonderful one. So first, um, the need for our wait. Why must we wait? Well, verse 7, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. We wait because Christ is coming. He's been once, but he will be back. And the end of verse 8, he will be back soon. The Lord's coming is near. But what does that mean? Is this James just getting it wrong? The first century church mistakenly thinking that Christ would return within their lifetimes, all a bit of an embarrassment now, really? Well, no, just because James hasn't come back in the last, uh, Jesus hasn't come back in the last 2,000 years, and we don't know exactly when he will come, that doesn't mean that James is wrong or lying when he says that the Lord's coming is near. Just like the first century church, we are in the end times, that the period in salvation history between Jesus' first coming and his second, whether it feels like it or not, whether he comes back tomorrow or not for another century. And of course, God who stands outside time, who invented time, has a very different sense of time to us. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3 verse 8, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Have you ever noticed how much longer a walk or a car journey feels when you're on the way to somewhere that you haven't been before compared to when you're coming back or going somewhere that you've been to before? Because on, on the way there, you don't, you don't quite know the route, the distance, the, the feel of the journey. But on the way back, or the next time you go, well, you know the markers. You remember where, how far one place is from the next. You know the things to look out for. You know the things that tell you that you're nearly there. I think Christ's second coming is a bit like that. It feels so far away now, but we might be just around the corner and we have no idea. Jesus could come next year, next month, next week, tomorrow. One day, just like that, we'll be on the other side of Jesus' return. And I suspect that we'll look back and be astonished that we didn't realize how close it was. So we must wait for Jesus to come back. And we must remember that in the scale of eternity, Jesus' return is just around the corner. And it could be around the corner in human time too, for all that we know. We wait because Christ is coming. We wait because he is coming soon. And we wait because the results of his coming 
can only come when he comes. We wait because the results of his coming can only come when he comes. Um, Look down in verse 7 at how James illustrates the point he's just made. Uh, See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. The wise farmer doesn't try to short-circuit the harvest, James says. The good farmer knows that that would be futile. You can't plant the seed, cut out the growth process, and skip straight to eating the fruit. It doesn't work like that. If you want the fruit, you are going to have to wait for the harvest. It's not wait and get fruit, or don't wait and get fruit. It's wait and get fruit, or don't wait and don't get fruit. The waiting isn't optional for the farmer. Uh, The wise farmer knows there's no way around the wait. It, It has to happen if you want to enjoy the grain, the fruit, and the vegetables. The wise farmer doesn't try to short circuit the harvest, James says. He or she patiently waits for the autumn and spring rains and for the land to yield its valuable crop. And so we must do the same. But we so often wish, don't we, that that we could or even try to short-circuit Jesus' return. We try to claim or we expect in the now what we're promised for then. We want greater intimacy and experience of God, greater assurance and fewer doubts in our Christian lives. We're totally unprepared for the sin that still lives within us, the attacks of the devil upon us. And we do it in the area of evil and injustice and oppression too, I think, both that which we suffer personally and that which we see others suffering. We try to claim or we expect in the now what we're promised for them. We demand the righting of all wrongs, the revealing of all secret things, the bringing of justice in any and every area of wickedness. We want it, we expect it, we require it. We can't understand why God wouldn't do it now. But we can't have the results of his coming before he comes. We can't short-circuit Christ's return. Like the wise farmer, we have to patiently wait for the harvest to demand now what he's promised for them will only leave us frustrated, disappointed, doubting, and confused. And to try to short-circuit Christ's return and to claim and to fight for what he's promised for them in the now, well, I think that's to forget who we are and who he is. Because we are not the people who are ultimately bringing God's kingdom Jesus is. Our primary job isn't to fight for God's kingdom to come. It's to pray for God's kingdom to come. We're not the freedom fighters, spiritual warriors, world changers, kingdom bringers. Jesus is. We don't set the agenda, determine the timing, bring the transformation, enact the justice. Jesus will. And to do that would be to make God small and to make us big, as Dan said a number of times as we've gone through this book together. Now, that's not to say that we have no part to play. 
I don't think this passage is a call to, to pacifism, to passivity, to, to sit back and watch the world go to ruin. And I don't think it's a call just to pray. I think we can and we should do more than pray, although praying should be the main thing that we do. We know that Christ works through his church as he brings his kingdom. We know that the church has an extraordinary role to play and an extraordinary opportunity to speak into injustice, to speak out for the oppressed, to love the vulnerable. But we need to have our perspective right. We must remember that it is Christ who brings God's kingdom, not us. He hasn't risen from the dead and then gone off to heaven and put his out of office on his email and handed the job on to us. He is still very much ruling from his father's side, bringing his kingdom in the here and now, before one day he will return and bring it fully. So we have to wait. We have to be patient, like the farmer waiting for the land to yield its valuable crop. I wonder, how do you find it hard to wait? Or perhaps in what areas do you feel like you shouldn't have to wait? Oppression that you or or others are facing, perhaps. A corrupt boss that you dream of finally being able to expose. A former employer or maybe even family member who swindled you out of wages or a possession that should rightfully have been yours, and you long to gain justice. Or your heart goes out to believers elsewhere in the world, struggling to worship, eat, live, stay out of prison, and it makes your blood boil. Or perhaps you struggle to wait simply in just the hardship of living for Christ in this life. There's a sin that you can't seem to shake and you just long to be free and you're so frustrated by its ongoing presence in your life. Or there's a career that feels just out of reach and you were so sure God was calling you to it and you can't understand why he won't give it to you. Or you long for a family of your own but God just feels tight-fisted in his determination not to give it to you. Or you roll from one thing to the next thing in life with no sense of purpose or direction. You can't understand why when you've given so much for God. Wait, says God. Wait patiently. Don't try to or or wish that you could short-circuit Christ's return. Don't claim his promises for now, the things that are promises for then. Wait. For Jesus will come back. He'll come back soon. And when he comes, he will bring the harvest. Every wrong he will right. Every pain he will heal. Every blessing he will pour out. So wait. We've seen the necessity of waiting. Now we'll move on to the nature of our wait. The nature of our wait. There's much that could be said about uh, some of the different terms used in the passage for waiting, the possible nuances those terms might have, or or about the difference between waiting passively and and waiting actively. But I don't think either of those things are where James focuses his attention. And what he does focus upon 
in his description of how we are to wait is perhaps not what we would expect. When I think of waiting for Christ's return, my mind probably goes to to praying, to studying the Bible, to to personal purity and holiness, to evangelism, to to good works. But James, well, verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Now, James might just be hopping from unrelated point to unrelated point. That's definitely a possibility. I'm not not convinced. I I, I think he probably has. I think there's probably more of a theme here tying things together than it might initially appear. And it seems to me that James encourages us to wait in the face of oppression by keeping an eye on our relationships within the church and particularly our words. It seems to me that for James, waiting for Jesus to return is as much a me and the person sitting next to me at church thing as a me and God thing. But why those two particular instructions? Don't grumble, verse 9, and don't swear oaths in verse 12. Well, let's look at them briefly in turn. The first one, don't grumble against each other, verse 9. When we're under pressure struggling, suffering persecution, our fuses tend to get shorter, don't they? We're more easily irritated, more likely to forget that people are people and think that there are obstacles getting in our way, stopping us from getting what we want. When life is a struggle, we are more likely to grumble against each other, forgetting the grace that God has shown us as we forget to show grace to others. But that is dangerous, says James. For by the rod you use to measure people, you will be measured, as Jesus taught. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Like the boss who's uh, on leave, but, but you know they're still checking their email every day and they know everything that's going on in the office. Jesus is there. He's outside the door, waiting to come in. And he sees all. He hears all. He knows all. So watch out for the thoughts of your hearts and the words of your mouths against other people. Let's not risk bringing judgment down upon ourselves by judging and writing off those God has made and called. Maybe just take a moment to consider a one of the situations in life in which you particularly feel the pressure. And consider, who do you tend to take that out on? Maybe it's um, the same person every time, the spouse, the friend, the housemate, the child who's just there in front of you to absorb your frustration, your complaints. Or maybe, maybe maybe it's more in your mind. You've got a set person or two that you go for. There's, there's history there, there's conflict, they rub you up the wrong way, you just don't seem to be able to agree with them on anything. And whatever the issue, it, it always seems to, to end up going back to them in your mind. And then consider, when did our Lord Jesus ever mouth off about others to make him feel better about himself or the situation he was in? Never. Never. 
So let's not let the devil get between us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's not grumble against each other. And then the second one, don't swear oaths. Verse 12, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or earth or by anything else, James writes. Now, this probably isn't swearing in the sense of sort of blaspheming, of, of, of using rude words. It's, it's probably more swearing in terms of swearing an oath, like, like we might do in court. But I think this is referring to uh, informal situations rather than uh, legal setups. And I have to say, I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever sworn an oath. I might have done. Correct me afterwards if I've sworn an oath to you. I don't, I don't think I have. And so for me, on a first reading of verse 12, it doesn't feel like a very live issue. And I think it's worth saying that we do live in a different culture to the church James was writing to. It is a lot easier for us to get things down on paper than it was for them. And so less hangs on our spoken words, our assurances, our promises um, than it did for them because they're so easily testable. Um, It's written, if not on paper, in in messages, in emails, uh, and any facts that we say, well, you know, we're only a Google away from uh, testing whether they're really true. So I do think that we're in a different situation to them, but I don't think that that means that this command is irrelevant for the church today. Because rash and loose speech, particularly the rash and loose, loose speech that overflows from us when we feel under pressure, when we feel attacked, well, that is just as dangerous in Oxford in 2022 as it was in the first century church. I mean, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, when uh, Dan taught us chapter three. Our tongues are powerful weapons. So we should use our words carefully. And we perhaps need to be particularly vigilant when we feel under pressure. We must be wary of words that subtly deceive that lead people to think things that aren't quite true, words that utter empty promises or misleading affirmations, words we use to get us out of a tricky situation or to get our own way. People should be able to take what we say as Christians at face value. Our words should be straight, open, transparent, consistent from person to person, whatever our circumstances and struggles at the time. That doesn't mean that we need to be wooden and mechanical in the way we speak, never daring to use a figure of speech or a metaphor for fear of being taken literally. It just means that if we say we're going to be somewhere, our listeners should be able to trust that we will be there. If we tell someone we'll do something, they should expect that we'll do it without needing them to remind us to do it. If we tell someone we'll pray for them, we should pray. And when our hearts are filled with strong emotions, with joy, with anger, we must be careful not to overcommit ourselves in our words. And consider for a moment, how aware are you of of what comes out of your mouth when you're feeling stressed? Do, Do you know the sorts of things that you say when you're under pressure? A lesson for me, I think, to start listening to myself a bit more carefully. And ask too, can people trust what you say? Do you say what you mean? Do you do what you say you'll do? Do 
You have to add in extra assertions and promises to convince people that your words are not empty. How close to reality are the, uh, the stories that you love to retell? Do you sometimes find yourself simply saying whatever will appease the other person, end the conversation quickly, or get you what you want? And again, we must ask ourselves, when did Jesus ever use his words just to force through his own way? Never. Let our words be true, just as the words of the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life are true. So as we think about this second point, how we're to wait, uh, James has given us two instructions. Don't grumble, don't swear oaths. And then he gives us an example. Uh, verse 10, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So James just gives us an example here of how to wait, the example of the prophets. There are a few reasons why I think he does that. Um, first of all, I think he wants us to see that living under oppression is the pattern, not the exception, for God's people. Living in hard times is the pattern, not the exception, for God's people. We are not the first Christians to rail against the injustice we see in the world around us. And unless Christ returns very soon, we won't be the last. Countless Christians have gone before us and seen injustice like we see and railed against it. And God's prophets, of course, are the prime example. Think of the brutal slavery that Moses saw God's people endure in Egypt. Think of the utter wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel under whom Elijah witnessed. Think of the barefaced idolatry and evil that Daniel observed in Babylon. Living in a world filled with oppression is not unusual. It is normal for God's people. For we live in a world that has turned its back on the Father of all goodness. And second, I think James wants us to see from the prophets an example of what it looks like to patiently persevere. They give us an example of what it looks like to patiently persevere in their steadfastness and their steadiness. They're wavering, yes, but never ultimately ceasing faith in God. Their quiet, humble endurance and their ongoing trust, they show us in all those things that we can wait patiently. We can bear up, no matter how great the trial that we are under. Think of Jeremiah, bitterly persecuted by pagan kings and by the men of his own hometown. Think of Ezekiel, whose message came out of painful marital bereavement. Or Hoseas, who came out of marital infidelity. Or Elijah, so afraid he wanted to die. And Job, think of Job, the prophet James himself picks out as an example. The man who lost almost literally everything, his possessions, his livelihood, his animals, his home, his children, his health. 
And yet he persevered, waiting patiently and trusting that he would see the Lord's purposes and goodness once again. We can endure, just as the prophets did. And finally, the prophets show us the good and gracious God we trust. They show us the good and gracious God we trust. The examples of the prophets show us that God always comes through for his people. That he is, verse 11, full of compassion and mercy. For which one of Moses, Isaiah and Elisha was ultimately abandoned by God. Their lives may not have ended with many earthly blessings. And they certainly hadn't received in their earthly lives all that God had one day promised for them. But which one, when they died, said anything other than that the Lord has been good to me? Which of them will spend their eternity complaining that God let them suffer, that he didn't come through for them, that he didn't do anything about the impression they endured and they witnessed? None of them. They will testify to the Lord's compassion and to his mercy. And again, Job heads the pack. He, perhaps more than any of them, in his earthly life, saw God come through for him. God gave him twice as much as he had before. The final chapter of Job tells us. He learnt that the God in whom he trusted truly was good and gracious, full of compassion and mercy. Our God abounds in love. He takes pleasure in pouring out his mercy on his people. Love is his first, his middle, his last name, his defining characteristic. It is who he is. If you were with us on the day away, a couple of weeks ago, we learnt that our God is a trinity. Love is at the very core of him and of reality. Our God is good and gracious. The prophets show us he is full of compassion and mercy. He will not let us suffer forever. He will not let his people suffer forever. Why not take some time this week uh, to read one of the books of the prophets through from start to finish. And if there's a little introduction in your Bible, um, read it. Don't just think about what they say, but, but explore their context as well, the situations in which they're speaking to. And feed on their example that you might better learn to wait patiently as you live under oppression for Christ who will come back. Or better yet, read a gospel from start to finish. See for yourself the goodness and gracious, the compassion and mercy of the one who will return to right every wrong, pour out on his people every blessing and take us home to be with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ will return. We thank you for the extraordinary hope that is for us. We thank you that he will come back soon. Help us to wait. Help us to wait patiently for him to return. Help us to do what we can to speak up for the vulnerable, for the oppressed. But Father, help us to remember 
that we cannot bring the fruit of Christ's return before he comes. Help us to trust that he will come and he will come soon and he will right every wrong and he will bless his people. And help us to love one another well, not groaning and complaining, speaking truthfully and honestly to each other. And help us to follow the example of the prophets and most of all, to follow the example of Christ as we wait. Amen.